17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Heavenly Father God, as we take these next few moments and we open your word, Lord, I pray that this would be an opportunity. As we know so often, God, we can open your word, go to it, simply to try to learn something or try to remember something or try to find answer for a specific problem with which we are dealing. And we forget sometimes that the written word reveals to us the living word, Jesus Christ. So Lord, very simply this morning, may we encounter your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I tell lots of stories about my family. Um, my kids are, just got nervous when I said that. It has nothing to do with them this morning. And most of you are like, well, Luann's at kids camp. I would never, ever do that one, um, especially when she's not here and I didn't get to ask permission. I've told you stories about my cousins, my brother, my sister, my, my mom, and my dad. Um, this is the first story I'll tell you about this person, and, and I have absolutely no problem telling stories on him. Um, he'll watch this recording later, and uh, if he does, hi, Mike, how are you? Um, the, uh, this is my father-in-law. So uh, my father-in-law and I have a very interesting relationship. Um, he makes fun of me a lot. Um, he's made fun of me for the last 20 years. It's okay. I've made fun of him. The only difference is he makes fun of me in front of people. I do it behind his back. So that's... that's uh, <laughs> That's how our relationship works, right? So um, my, my father-in-law, is, uh, is, as many of you may know, uh, you know, my dad is a pastor and my brother's a pastor. My father-in-law is also a pastor. I uh, actually pastors a church in Mountain Home, Arkansas. And um, anyway, he, uh, uh, but one of the things he loves to do, my father-in-law for years was a tournament bass fisherman. And uh, I did not really grow up, I, I grew up kind of a little more country than that, I mean, in the sense that we just went catfishing or fishing for brim in the pond near our house, and um, he had this amazing bass boat and 9,000 lures and every kind of, you, you can imagine. I mean, it just, it, it was an amazing thing, and, and so uh, they lived in a little town called Bryson, Texas, and there was a really amazing lake there, and he said, hey, let's go fishing. I said, okay, fine. 
So we get in the, the, the boat, and it was a small lake, so he didn't use his big boat. We, he had a thing called a, a bass cat, if you know what that is. A, a bass cat's kind of basically a floaty with two chairs on it, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smaller boat. And um, it's made out, it's just plastic, and it has two chairs sitting on it, and it runs off a trolling motor, not off a big outboard motor. And it's enough for a little lake. It's, it's fine. And so uh, we, we go out there, and, and I didn't bring anything. We were visiting with them, and, and so he said, here, take this pole. Don't lose it. Don't break it, or I'll break you. That's exactly what he said to me when he handed it to me. I said, okay. Um, and so he gives me the pole. And we start going around the lake, and we're fishing, and we're, you know, and, and you say, well, I'm fishing, having a good time talking. No. We get in the boat. It's serious time. We don't talk. It's like eight hours of silence. <laughs> Except for when we got over into a specific part of the lake, he said, now, hey, don't cast over there. There's way too much undergrowth. You're just going to get hung up. Of course, I know way more than a guy who's been tournament bass fisherman for fishing for 20 years. So he, he's turned the other direction. The chair swivel. He's turned the other direction. So, man, I just launched one in there. Because I figure fish love undergrowth, right? So I'm going I'm to catch one over there. So I get in there. And, and sure enough, man, as soon as it hits the water, pow, something hits it. I pull back. And when I do, I pull back. I hang on a log um, in, the, in the water. Well, if you're familiar with the way bass fishermen work, uh, when they're fishing, uh, they, they, they throw a bait out in the water. Reel it in. Throw a bait out in the water. Reel it in. If they didn't get a bite, they change the bait. Throw a bait out in the water. Reel it in. Throw a bait out in the water. Nope, this isn't a good spot. And they just take off to another area of the lake. Well, um, his, he's facing one direction. I'm facing the other. I'm hung on this deal. He decides this isn't a good spot anymore. So he just, he, he doesn't say a word. <clears throat> Boy, he locks that motor in drive. And he takes off. Well, as he starts to take off, I have this moment where I realize the boat's going that way, but my pole is hung over here. And at that moment, I recognize there are two things that I would like to hang on to at this moment, but they're going in two completely different directions. <laughs> and before he can say anything, he's, he's going, and he was about to say, hey, we'll run over here, I guess. And he turned just in time to see my feet go up because I had the pole like this because I didn't want to let it go. He said he would break me. So I was, I was just holding on to it, right? And I fly out of the boat. I mean, I just, I flip right off the back of it. I didn't lose the pole, but I flipped right off the back of it. Of course, he stops. He comes back over. And he, and, and he says, you know that pole has a float on the end of it, right? So, yeah, he goes, you could have let it go. We just come back and got it. It, it was been floating on the water. A little late for that, but... About that moment, I realized that my cell phone was in my back pocket. Um, and so this was just, you know, this just turned out to be a really great trip to my in-law's house. And, and then I try to climb back in the boat. And when I'm trying to get back in the boat, I keep slipping and falling. And he's not helping me. He's laughing the whole time because I can't get back in the boat. Now, there was this moment, though. There was this moment where everything was fine. But then there was a moment where I noticed, like I said, that the thing I was on that was the most important was going one direction. And the thing I was trying to hold on to was pulling me in another direction. And, and, and at that moment, there came a moment where I realized I'm going to have to choose which one that I hang on to. But before I got to make that choice, 
Those seats aren't fastened down. That's why I flipped out the back. See, we hear that story. I know it's a funny story. I think it's a funny story. Um, but the truth is, is that what happens in the church is very, uh, off, very often is the same thing. See, we have people in the church who want to say they're Christian and say they follow the Lord, but they're trying to hold on to other doctrines and other things that stand against the word of God. And let me tell you, at some point, at some moment, those two things will diverge and you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision on whether you're going to go with the boat or land in the water. You have to make a decision on whether you're going to stay in and stand firm and hold fast or you're going to fly out the back. And see, it's so common today for people to try to hold divergent views and divergent teachings and even divergent activities that God has told us very clearly are contrary to his word and his person. It's shocking, in fact, how we see this. We will see people say, I believe in the gospel. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in all those things. But it would be really great if we could stop talking about the cross so much, because, I mean, that's just brutal. Or it would be really great if, if you'd stop talking about the blood, because the blood, that just, oh, that just gets all over, it's, oh. Or it'd be really great if you'd stop mentioning hell. Can I tell you something very from the, from the bottom of my heart? I really wish I could. I don't like the idea of hell. I don't like the concept of hell. But it's far worse. I, I can promise you this. You'll be far more bothered by hell than by hearing about hell. And so because of that, there will be people who will say, I hold to Christian doctrine and yet say, but the God I serve would never let people go to hell. The God I serve would never say that this is wrong. The God I serve would never judge people. It's interesting because one of the most common names that God calls himself is the judge. So how, how is it possible then? What are we supposed to do when we think about the fact that we live in a culture and we live in a world where it tells us that it's okay to say you believe one thing but then also hold beliefs that are completely contrary uh, to what you say you believe. When we look at this text this morning, what we'll find is that faithful disciples stand firmly in the faith and against false teaching. And if we're going to stand firm in the faith and against false teaching, then first, as faithful disciples, we should remember he is our righteous head. He is our righteous head. And I mean head like as in leader. He is our righteous head. If you look at verse 12, it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I, we just stop right there. Because when we think about Christ, when we think about God, I, I always want this. I, I, had a, I have a professor, had a professor. I wrote, actually, um, recently in, in, the, in the book that my father and my brother and I wrote, one of the chapters is kind of dedicated to him. His name is Dr. Metz. Y'all have had Dr. Metz here before, actually. Uh, Dr. Leroy Metz, uh, retired professor of Greek and New Testament um, at Criswell College. And Dr. Metz used to say something. He used to say, he would periodically, like, I just know at some point, someday, I'm going to look back and he's going to be sitting back there somewhere because he says, I love to go and visit 
my boys, is what he always says. I love to go and visit my boys. And someone said, well, Dr. Metz, when you go, what are you looking for? You're looking for proper use of the Greek. You're looking for proper use of syntax and hermeneutics and all these other things. And he said, no, all I want to know is this. Are my boys big God kind of preachers or little God kind of preachers? And I hope that you know this. I, I am a big God kind of preacher. I believe that God, in our minds, God is so much smaller than he should be. Much of the time. Much of the time, we, we think, we say, well, yeah, but I believe God is this God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. And every single one of those things is true. I mean, goodness, he's not just a God of love. He is love, right? We, we know that. But may we never forget, you want a big picture of God, you know this, that when he revealed himself to Moses on the mountain, he said, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness throughout generations. We say, yes, that's it. The next sentence says, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting wrath upon generation after generation. You say, man, I don't like that verse. Take it up with the editor-in-chief, not the paper boy. That's what it says. <laughs> when we think about God and we think about Jesus Christ, because remember, who is saying this to John in, this, in these messages to the churches? It's Jesus himself speaking to John. And he's telling him to write these things down for the churches. And the church at Pergamum hears something. Now, this is really interesting because the first church, the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus got a really great greeting, right? The church at Ephesus, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and he walks among the seven golden lampstands. We talk about that. That's just amazing that God walks among us. And then the, uh, the church at Ephesus, which is the one we looked at last week, he says... That he is the first and the last, the one who was dead and now is alive again. And both of these things are things that they needed to hear. It's, it's basically the way Jesus introduces himself is Jesus is the answer for whatever problem they're dealing with. So he comes to, he comes to the people, for instance, in Smyrna and he tells them the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Why? Because they were about to experience tribulation and even death. And that's a really hopeful thing when you know that Jesus died and came to life. So then why does he begin this passage? This is the first one where his greeting, this is not a fun greeting. This is not an exciting greeting. We either say, man, but he's holding the two-edged sword. That's, that's the word of God. Well, it is. Um, but when we hear this, if you're familiar with the New Testament, sometimes we hear this phrase that says that he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We think, man, Hebrews 4, Right? The word is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce through bone and even marrow. And that's what the word of God does. In Hebrews 4, it says that the, it, that was the, the word for uh, the, the short knife that the Levites would use to cut open the animal, take out every piece of the animal, and inspect every part of the animal for spot and blemish. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying that's what the word of God does. The word of God opens us up, lays us bare, and takes every single part of us and inspects every part of us for blemish blemish amen and hallelujah the only issue we have is that the word there in hebrews 4 is not the same word that's used here see that sounds like painful but yet at the same time a purifying thing right we know that hebrews 4 that's an amazing passage this word is different though this word is the word for uh, a broadsword a broadsword I, I have a scottish claymore at home the boys like to play with it periodically think william wallace tall broad sword 
maybe about four and a half, five feet long, very heavy, not always a sharp edge. And the reason it didn't have a sharp edge is because when you came into the field of battle with a broadsword, the, the way that you did other weapons, it might be that you were very strategic and you were very smooth and, and, and all of those things with how you use the broadsword uh, or how you use other weapons. But when you use a broadsword and you come in, basically the message you're saying is, if you don't want to die, get out from in front of me. Because the guy using it is just swinging it from right to left. Why? Because it's a two-edged sword. It has two sides. So he's just swinging it. So what did they do? They just let those guys walk right through the middle of the battle. And they would take out anybody in their path. So when Jesus says he is the one who has the two-edged sword, this is a message not of comfort. This is a, this is a threat. This is threatening. It's a sword of destruction. It's a sword of purification. It's a reference to uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 19, 15. This is the, the other time this word is used where he says uh, in Revelation 19, 15, it says that when he comes he will open his mouth and out from his mouth will come a sharp two-edged sword and with it he will strike down the nations. This is not a, a comforting statement. This is a Warning. This is a threat. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 2, the mouth of the Messiah is like a sharp sword. Isaiah eleven four. the Messiah has a sharp sword and with it he will slay the wicked. This word, this, war, this, this greeting is a warning. As a people of God and as the church we must never forget that the one we worship, yes, he is loving and he is merciful, but he is the all-powerful God. He is the righteous and holy one. He is the one who is so holy he cannot abide by sin. We say, well, he can't even look at sin. He can't look at sin in love, but he can look at sin in wrath, and he will destroy it. That's why the scripture says when Jesus died on the cross that it pleased the Father to strike the son. Why? Because his sin was laid, our sin was laid upon him. This statement is a word of threat from the Lord. Why? Because he takes the activities and he takes the beliefs of his church and of his people seriously. See, in this day and age, we, we kind of approach it flippantly. Well, it's not that big of a deal if somebody believes XYZ or does XYZ. I mean, you could still be a Christian and if you have to begin justifying yourself by saying you can still be a Christian and do this or and believe this, you do realize that it already makes it sound like you know deep inside that you're wrong. This statement is a word of threat because he takes these things seriously. And because he's the righteous one, as faithful disciples, we should resolve to stand firm in the faith. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell. Again, with the I know, right? He said that every time so far. I know. He is aware. He's aware. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So we'll just stop for two seconds and talk about this. This is a letter to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum is one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Pergamum is also known as something else. Pergamum was the epicenter, the epicenter of pagan worship in Asia Minor. Every, there, was a temple, there was a temple to Athena, there was the temple to Zeus, uh, there was a temple to Escalupius, which I know is really weird, and maybe you think, well, I've never heard of him before. You've, heard, you've seen him. Yeah, you've seen him because if you've ever seen a hospital, 
or someone wearing a medical jacket, then you've seen a staff with two snakes wrapped around it. That's the symbol for Aesculapius. I mean, he was, the, he was the Greek, uh, or Roman, really, um, god, uh, Greek god of medicine and health. And so that's where that comes from. But this was the epicenter of that. So it didn't just include a hospital. It was also a temple and an altar. And there was an altar to Zeus. But not just Zeus, as he was known everywhere else. They referred to him as Zeus Soter, which meant Zeus our Savior. So they had this temple to Zeus their Savior. And when you came up to Pergamum, you entered a low valley. And then when you come out of the valley, Pergamum set up on a hill. But then in the middle of Pergamum, up on the top of the hill, was what's known as an Acropolis. So there was a temple to Zeus. And in the middle of that temple was, a, it was an altar. And it was very tall, it white, it gleamed in the sun. And they referred to it as his throne. It's where Zeus set to rule over the area. And he says, I know where you live, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. But even more so, Pergamum is also known, historically, as the place where emperor worship began. It's, it's where they, were, uh, they worshipped emperors, uh, Roman emperors. In fact, they were required in Pergamum, it was the law, uh, they were required to offer a sacrifice to the emperor in worship every single year. Every person was required to do this. You say, okay, so which one is it? Which one is it? I mean, you just listed like five different things. Well, the truth is, I don't think we have to really decide which one it is. Because the reason he can say this is where Satan's throne is, this is where Satan rules, is because it is the epicenter of pagan worship in the known world, in Asia Minor. It is the, it is the epicenter of it. So when you look at it, we say, well, why does he say it's where Satan dwells? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that when you offer sacrifices to false gods, you're not worshiping false gods. That's just a statue of stone. You're worshiping demons. You're worshiping Satan. That's what he says. And so there are no such, there is no Zeus. You know that, right? There is no Aphrodite. There's no Athena. There's none of that. There's just Satan and his demons deceiving human beings. And so whenever he says, you dwell where Satan's throne is, he's saying, I know for a fact you live in one of the worst places in the world. That's why I always, I don't bristle, I guess. That's why I always just go, well, when people say, it has never been as bad as it is today. Well, that's not true. For everyone, at least. So he says, you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet, verse 13, yet you hold fast my name, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Like he wants to reiterate that again, where Satan dwells. Um, but he says, you held fast to my name. You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Now, so he says, my name, my faith, my witness. Actually, in Greek, he says my one more time. So four times, God, uh, Jesus is saying, these are, these are my things. You're holding fast to my things. But you notice, it says, he says, you are holding fast. But then he says, you did not deny. That's in the past tense. You did not deny um, during the days of Antipas. There's a lot of discussion about who Antipas was. Was Antipas their pastor? Um, historically, that's actually what people believe, but that may not be the case necessarily. But it says, nonetheless, he was his faithful witness. Now, this word for witness here is the word marturos. 
It's the word we get martyr from. Uh, now, usually, or used to, that word meant just someone who witnessed, someone who would declare something on behalf of someone else or, or whatever. Uh, but this passage is really the reason that the word uh, for witness became the word we use for martyr, which means someone who declares the word of God, stands for the truth of Jesus Christ, and is killed for their faith. And that's where this came from. Church history uh, records that Antipas, we don't know if this is necessarily the case, but um, there are some records that uh, show that Antipas was actually, uh, the, the people in Pergamum, the pagans in Pergamum, built a bronze bull, and then they put Antipas inside it, and then lit a fire underneath it and burned him alive. And so he says, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that kind of persecution, that kind of difficulty, you stood firm. You held fast. You did not deny my name. See, these people lived in a culture where pagan worship just ran rampant. It was everywhere. The resolve we must have, the resolve we must have as the people of God, because case in point, as we'll see in a minute, I'm pretty sure that what we're going to hear in a second about what was going on in their culture, um, we're going to... Probably, maybe you'll, you'll uh, have another culture brought to mind uh, that will remind you of, like as in the one we're living in currently. And the resolve we must have is not one where we can simply state what we believe. It has to be a resolve to hold fast to his name, which means holding fast to his teachings, holding fast to his character, holding fast to who he is and all that he says, holding fast to that even to the point of being persecuted, losing jobs, losing friends, holding fast. This means that we stand for what we know to be true about Christ regardless of the outcome. There are many, and there will be many more opportunities to back down and to deny Christ. And it's the easy way out. It's to cave to the culture, to cave to the pressure and give in. Our resolve must be strong, even to the point of death if need be. Why? Because faithful disciples resolve to stand firm in the faith. And while we stand firm, we must have our feet firmly planted in the truth. And there are many today who have begun to slide and, and to, to cave to the culture. But what we see from this passage is that as faithful disciples, we should remain doctrinally pure. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. So they've done some amazing things. They stand fast, they, they don't deny, all of those things. In the midst of a terrible culture. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Without going into deep detail, Numbers chapter 22 through 24 and Numbers chapter 31, if you want to go look at that later, you can. Other than to say this, Balaam, if you're familiar with the name Paladin, have gun, will travel, right? Balaam was a prophet who basically said, like, have fake prophecies, will travel, Right, So that's what he did. He was a traveling false prophet. And uh, Balak called him in to curse the children of Israel. But every time Balaam would try to curse the children of Israel, only blessings would come out. He, could, he couldn't curse them. But then what happened is, since Balaam said, I can't curse them, he turned to Balak and he said, here's what you need to do. 
Forget me trying to curse them. Go and get the Moabite women who are pagans to come and seduce the Israelite men. Draw them into sexual immorality and draw them into idol worship and pagan idolatry. And so that's what they did. And it it just damaged the children of Israel horrifically. And he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So he says, you have people in your church who are saying it is okay to worship idols. You have people in your church who are saying things like, no, you can be a Christian and still participate in. Why? Because it's pagan worship. What does pagan worship have to do with? There are really two things that pagan worship does when they worship uh, these false gods. Uh, They have food and wine, and they have a whole lot of fornication and immorality. Those are the two things that are involved in pagan worship. And what he's saying is, you have people in your church who are telling you, it is okay to say you are a Christian and still be involved in these immoral things. It is okay to be a Christian. In fact, even list them so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, so also you have those, or some, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's the only way we even know what the Nicolaitans believed, as he says, so also. So they believe the same thing. They believe in sexual immorality. They believe in false, or in idolatry. So what does he say then? He says, therefore, repent. Now, here's the interesting thing. He says these things are going on, and then he says, these things I have against you. Now, do you notice that the things he has against them is not that they hold the false doctrine? Did you notice in the passage? Look at the passage. He didn't say that he has that against them. He didn't say that they were even necessarily participating in it. What is the reason he calls them to repent? There's one. They, that you have some among you who do this. What is Jesus' problem here? Jesus' problem is not that the main body of the church is holding to some false uh, doctrine and, taking, and, and participating in sinful acts. The issue that Jesus has with this church is that the vast majority hold to right doctrine, but they allow people in the church who hold to false doctrine and teach false doctrine and live immoral lifestyles. His issue is not that the church is straying. His issue is that the church is, if you go by the title of the sermon, the issue is that the church is theologically soft. They won't stand up for what they believe. Therefore, repent. He says their problem is you need to turn away from that. What does it look like when a church repents of this? That's when a church starts calling sin, sin. That's when a church starts saying that's false doctrine, and we're not going to teach that here. That's when the people of God say, no, I'm sorry, Jesus is perfect, Jesus is fully God, the Trinity is a real thing, the Bible is completely inerrant, infallible in all of its ways, it is completely authoritative, and it is our only authority for faith and practice. That's what it looks like when a church stands for the word of God and repents from being impure and theologically soft. That's what it looks like. It looks like a church that looks at the culture and says, I don't care what you do, we're not going to cave. See, in the book of Jude, Jude warns them of false teachers. Do you know that Jude does not warn them of false teachers and say, hey, watch out for those false teachers standing out in the street screaming all kinds of crazy stuff. You know what he tells them? He says, watch out for the false teachers that are among you. See, sometimes we say, man, oh, the culture. All that, and we talk about all that. It's like, oh, the greatest enemy. You realize that a lot of times in the church, the greatest enemy is inside the walls, not outside the walls. 
say, so you're saying we have false teachers? I'm saying we need to be aware. I'm saying we need to know the word of God. We need to know the word of God uh, backwards and forwards. And, and let me tell you, while it's important, I'm saying you need to know the word of God more than just telling me who the third king of Assyria was. You need to know what it means that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You need to be able to tell me, hey, if you want to know what that looks like, go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You need to, tell, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God that created all things. You need to be able to say he upholds all things by the word of his mouth. Go to Colossians 1, go to Hebrews 1, go to John chapter 1. You need to be able to tell me that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Go to Romans. You need to tell me that it's not about what we do to invent things to impress people, but that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvations in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. You need to tell me that the word of God is reliable, authoritative, and faithful, like Paul told Timothy. You need to know the word of God and stand for the truth of God. Because look at what he says here. He says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of of my mouth. Why is that a warning? What did I say? It's not, a, it's not like he's fencing with this little bitty foil, you know, it, it, whatever. It's a broadsword. What happens with a broadsword? Collateral damage happens with a broadsword. What Jesus is saying is, you church better repent and remove or, or, or call to repentance and, and faith those who are doing false doctrine, teaching false doctrine in the church, or I'm going to come down with a big broadsword and I'm just going to start wiping people out. That's what he's actually saying. This is a strong warning. Why? Because the church is the bride of Jesus Christ and he takes the purity of his bride very, very seriously. But look what he says. He doesn't say, I'm going to come down and slap you on the hand. He says, I'm going to come down and make war. Make war against you. See, we can tell in this passage, it's not enough to simply know true doctrine. You have to stand on it. You have to stand firm in it. You have to stand up for it. I'll tell you, sometimes standing up for right doctrine, standing up for the truth of God's word, it's, it's a little nerve-wracking. It can be a little difficult. But I can promise you this, the purity of the church of Jesus Christ is far more important than any discomfort you and I might feel we need to have such a disciple making culture here at Eastwood that our people know and can explain right doctrine you say well so okay so what's the plan how are we going to get there in six months we don't get there in six months we get there over years but as Adrian Rogers said, there is nothing better to change the heart and mind of a church and get it on track than the faithful, systematic exposition of God's word over an extended period of time. So as we hold tightly to the faith we have been given and we remain doctrinally pure, then and only then, as faithful disciples, can we rest in his glorious promise. We rest in his glorious promise. That, I don't know why, I, just this past 
couple of weeks as I was looking over this verse. This verse just hits me. It just hits me. Um, I will tell you if, you, if you enjoy it as I do, if you've never heard of him, you really should jump in there and listen. But Michael Card has an entire album on the book of Revelation. And there's a, there's a song in there called Overcomers where he literally talks about every single one of these verses that says to the one who overcomes in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And then he mentions this one as well, but it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers or the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. Say, ooh, okay, Pastor, tell us what that means. Well, Exodus chapter 16, children of Israel are wandering in the desert. They have no food. God provides for them. It's a special type of provision. Basically a bread-like substance that's sort of sweet uh, or whatever. It falls from heaven. Right, That's manna. It's God's provision. And throughout Scripture, it's given as a symbol of God's provision. Say, okay, so, so what is the hidden manna? What is the secret manna? Well, it's hidden. It's secret. I have no idea. All I know is it's God's provision. And it's an amazing provision. It's a miraculous provision. It's something only God can do. Then he says this, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone. And you say, okay, what is that? Well, actually, I do have an explanation for that. Um, there are multiple different views about it, but the one that fits the best with the manna is this. Is that this white stone, whenever they would have games of any kind, and you would win. We do it today, right? When you win a race or whatever, you get a, a medal, a medallion that you wear around your neck that usually has a, it says something about what race it was. Well, when they would win, they would be given a small stone, a white stone, and whatever the event was that they won might have that on there, and then they would have their name engraved on it, and they would be given that. And then after the games were over, which would last for a very long time, when it was time, they would have a massive feast. And when they would have this feast, it was known as the Victor's Feast. The only people that were invited to that were basically really wealthy people and the guys who won. And when you got up to the door, you couldn't just get in. You know what you had to do? You had to pull out that white stone that had your name on it to show them. That was like your ticket to be able to get into the feast. So he says to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give them a white stone with their name on it. Why? Because you're the victor. He says if you overcome, you get admission. You get admission into what? Well, you get admission into the feast. And a part of that feast is that hidden manna. And you'll have, and this is maybe the most amazing statement I can think of in this passage. You will be given a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. See, sometimes we get this picture of heaven like we're all just sort of floating up in this ethereal area. Um, and we hear harps and we just sing for the rest of eternity. We do sing. I mean, that's in scripture. But almost like we're nameless. Yeah, we just kind of roam around. You know, yeah, I got, this, I got this, this major room, this serious mansion. I get to see these cool streets. But I mean, why is it? Listen to what he says about heaven. Heaven is not an impersonal place. He says, when you get there, you're going to have a stone. Jesus is going to give you a stone. It's going to have a new name written on it. It's, it's going to have a new name written on it. And the only two people for all of eternity who know that name is the one who wrote it and the one who gets it. That means that for all of eternity, I'm going to have a name that nobody else knows except my Savior. And that's an intimate relationship. 
That's a name only he calls me by. That's why that, the old gospel song that I have a new name written down in glory and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. I have that name. It belongs to me. This is an intimate statement of worship and, and, and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So to the one who stands fast, to the one who overcomes, you will get the hidden secret provision of God and you will be allowed into that feast and you will be given a new name that only you and your Savior knows and that will be between you and him for all of eternity. No one knows except the one who receives it. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you can't rest in this promise. You can't rest in the promise of eternity. You can't rest in the promise of anything other than what is listed here, the wrath of God. It doesn't have to be that way, though. Because what did he call them to do? He says, I'm going to come do it. But then he says, but repent or I will. He, he's giving you, you're here this morning because you have an opportunity to turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You're here this morning because you have an opportunity to know that Christ, the one telling them this is the one who died for them. And he died for you. And he rose from the grave. And if you will trust him with your entire life, with your entire heart, you too can have eternal life. You can have that hidden manna. You can have that new name only between you and him, and you can have eternal life if you will place your faith and trust in him. You can do that this morning. You can do that even right now, sitting there in your seat. You can do that at this moment by simply saying, Jesus, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sin. I trust you. I believe in you. Save me. Make me yours. Believer, is there something in your life? Is there something in your life that you are tolerating that would displease your Lord and Savior? Are you standing firmly in the faith or are you wavering before a wicked and perverse culture? Are you willing to resolve to stand against false teaching and false living? Are you willing to say, as the Reverend Palmer Hartso did in 1896. Maybe you're familiar with this hymn. But he said this. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. It's things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and my strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He alone has the words of life. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the path of sin. Friends may oppose me and foes may beset me. Still, I will enter in. I am resolved, and here's the call. I am resolved, and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay, taught by the Bible and led by the Spirit, we will walk the heavenly way. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, 
I will come to thee. Are you resolved this morning to follow the Savior? Will you run to Jesus? Believer, maybe you've been wavering. Maybe you've been ready to cave. Maybe you've been trying to hold on to things that you know aren't right and are contrary to the word of God. Maybe you're listening to teachers you know you shouldn't be listening to. Maybe you've been doing any of those things. Will you say this morning, I resolve no longer to linger. No longer charmed by the world's delight because things that are higher and things that are nobler, these are the things that have allured my sight. Are you ready to say, I am resolved. Hasten. Hasten to him today.